Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture reading this morning is the 91st Psalm. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Good morning. Open God's book, please, to Philippians chapter 4. If you want an outline of the sermon, that's where you may find it. And I hope you came hungry for the scriptures this morning. Philippians, the fourth chapter. We're going to take up in just a couple of minutes in verse 6. This sermon is on the subject of contentment. We, We often use the word contentment and happiness as synonymous terms. We use them interchangeably. I'm, I'm content. I'm happy. We think it's the same thing. But it's not, and because this is a Bible subject, and we're going to be talking about it this morning from Philippians chapter 4, I want to give you the nuance. I want to give you the distinction between being happy and being content. Now, this is Oxford Dictionary. It's the best definition I could find for contentment. For happiness, Oxford says this, good fortune or luck in life or in a particular affair, success, Prosperity, the state of pleasurable contentment of mind, which results from success or the attainment of what is considered good. So successful, prosperous, and then there's this emotion that I receive as a result of that, and that emotion is happy. I'm happy. Now, contentment is different because contentment is not just an emotion, nor is it something that's short-lived. Contentment is something that's part of our fabric. It's part of our the way that we think. And, and so this is more consistent. Listen to contentment. 
Oxford Dictionary, having one's desire bound by what one has, though that may be less than one could have wished, not disturbed by the desire of anything more or anything different, satisfied so as to not repine. Contentment is, and this is the critical line, not disturbed by the desire of anything more. It isn't the case that I would say, I wouldn't be pleased if I had something different, maybe an advancement or whatever it happens to be. It's not that. It's that where I am right now is fine with me. I'm not disturbed or I don't pine for something else. I'm not agitated. And that's contentment. Now, it's a Bible subject. So First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we're not going to carry anything out. Or Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content. It's kind of a command there. Be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And in that passage, what you have is that I serve an awesome God who is infinitely resourceful, infinitely good, and I put my trust in him. And as a result of that, he says, I want you to be content. What is content? Not disturbed by the desire of anything more. I'm not disturbed by the fact that I I want something more. What I have now satisfies me. That's the idea of contentment. I am satisfied. Would it be nice if I had something else? Fine, that would be fine. I'm sure I would enjoy it. Would it be nice if I had a promotion or I had some, some advancement? Yeah, that would be fine. I'm sure I would enjoy it. Not the point. The point is where I am right now, I'm fine. The point is where I am right now, I'm not disturbed by the desire of anything more. Now here's the Apostle Paul. The book of Philippians is written when he's in prison in Rome. And so we're going to talk some about his circumstance, and this is the backdrop for Paul talking about our contentment, which is, I think it's just perfect. It's ironic that here he is suffering like he is, and yet he's talking, teaching about contentment. The Stoics had an idea about contentment too, but it was different. The Stoics had the idea that contentment came through indifference. It came by apathy. And so they would argue this way, if you break your cup, If you break the cup from which you drink, you say, I don't care. And you practice this, and and you can get to where you could lose your pet or your horse, and you could say, I don't care. Apathy. You could practice this to the degree that you could lose a loved one and have the same reaction to it. I don't care. Now, that's not contentment that Paul is talking about. That's not the idea. Paul is in the Roman prison. He's thanking the Philippians for a gift. And here we have it now. Let me go through the three things. Start in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, verse 9, the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. 
But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did also, you also did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now verse 11, and this is the key verse for our lesson. Not that I speak in respect of what, for I have learned in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. I'm content. All right, here are the three secrets, according to Paul, to be content as a Christian. Would you describe yourself as contented? According to the definition I just gave you a moment ago, would you say, I'm a contented person? Three points, three secrets. Here's the first one. It starts in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did also care, but you lacked opportunity. Now, here's, here's when this happens. This is, this is Paul in prison. He, he was 10 years ago in Philippi. You remember Acts chapter 16? The kids in this congregation do. And that's where you have two conversions. Remember who was converted in Acts 16? Lydia and the jailer. And so here's, here's the, I, I just think that Philippians is wonderful because Paul is writing back to this place where 10 years ago he went through this, this thing. He and Silas, they, they pulled a demon out of a slave girl who was a soothsayer, a fortune teller. And as a result, they were put in prison. They were beaten. Their feet fast in the stocks. And you remember that the Philippian jailer was converted. He obeyed the gospel. And Lydia and her family or her household obeyed the gospel. Other people did too. And he loves them. Paul loves those people. He went from there to Thessalonica. And from Thessalonica now, he's gone to this Roman prison. And he's writing back to the Philippians because they sent him some money. When he was in Thessalonica, they sent him some support. And this is a thank you letter. All right? So he's thanking them for considering him and being kind to him this way. Now look at verse 10 because it's about providence. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Flourished again is a horticultural term, and it means blossomed again. Just like the flowers are going to come back in the spring, it blossomed again. Your care for me showed up again. Though surely you did care, you also did care, but you lacked opportunity. What's that? I wasn't stressed about that. I wasn't undone about that. I wasn't manipulative of people to try to get them to send me something because I knew that you loved me. I knew you cared about me. And I knew that you'd send support when the opportunity arose. What's the opportunity? And the answer is God. The answer is providential care. That's what. And that's what happened. How are you doing on God's providence? How are you doing on trusting God's providence? And sometimes that's a real challenge. You go through scripture and you, you read about people who enjoyed God's providence. And I mean, why do we have the end of Genesis to talk about the life of Joseph? Well, you could, you could talk about a number of reasons, historic reasons, but one was that you learn about providence. There were some hard times in the life of Joseph. I mean, you got him, you got him sold into slavery in Egypt. You see him in prison for crimes he didn't commit. But ultimately, what's going to happen is that Joseph is going to be leading the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. That's pretty amazing. What about Esther? What about Ruth? What's the difference between God working miraculously and providentially? Can we go through this? Miraculously, is a, it's a supernatural occurrence. 
It's where you have the natural flow of life going on and God stops it. And like he did with the Red Sea, he just opens up a gap and he sticks in his action, his will. That's a miraculous thing. Miraculous is supernatural. It's outside the boundaries of nature. Providence is within the boundaries of nature. And it's when God orchestrates all sorts of different things in our lives to bring about his desired will. Incidentally, which would you say is more difficult? Which is more impressive when you think about the miraculous or the providential care of God? And I would say it's the providential care. Because so many different things are involved. Was that true in Joseph's life? Was that true in Esther's life? Was it true in Ruth's life? And the answer is, oh my, my, yes it was. Paul says, I know that you cared about me. You simply lacked opportunity. And I don't know if that was because of their poverty or because they didn't know. They didn't have communication like we do. And maybe they just didn't know that Paul needed help like he did. But now, he says, you've had opportunity. Now, God providentially has brought this about. If I ask you for a verse of scripture that describes God's providential care, what would be your favorite? And most of us would answer Romans 8 and 28. We know, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now in that, of course, is the teaching of, of the remission of sins, about redemption. But I believe it's broader than that. It's applicable to the providence of God all the time in our lives. I know that because you can read on. Here's Romans 8 and 28. We know that all things work together for good, but you drop down to just 31. A couple of verses later, listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely also give us all things? Drop down now to verse 37, 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, things present, things to come, nor height, depth, any other created, created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I heard of a man one time with a pretty good illustration. He was, had, he was at a youth meeting, had a lot of kids there, and he wanted to teach this point about God's providence and how God works to bring about his desired good. Then it doesn't mean that everything in your life is good. And it doesn't mean that everything in your life is for your good. It means that God's going to orchestrate everything in your life to bring about your ultimate good. He's going to use it all for your good ultimately. And this, this gentleman illustrated it this way. He had some of those teenage boys come up to the front and he brought them things he wanted them to taste. And so to the first one, he gave some flour. Taste this flower, F-L-O-U-R. And it was bitter and he made a face. And then he, then he said to the next one, I want you to taste this. And he had some shortening. Now you can imagine what it would taste to put your finger in shortening and to touch your tongue and you think, mm. and so you had a grimace from that one too. And then he had some baking soda. Ugh, same reaction. Then you had some salt, and you had some sugar, and you had some milk, and some flavoring. And so a couple of those, I mean, they were, they were good about the, the flavoring. They were good about the sugar and the milk, made good faces. But you got this mixture of different reactions. And then what he did was to put all those ingredients in a bowl. And you see where this is going. And he stirred it up, and he took that because he had already, already prepared a cake. He put it under the shelf, and he pulled out this, this baked cake. 
And he gave each of them a piece of that, and everybody was happy. And he says, that's how the providence of God is in Romans 8 and 28. All things work together. We know that all things work together for good to them that are... So that doesn't mean that everything in your life is good. It just means that God's going to put together all those things in your life, the good and the bad, the hard, the easy, and bring about his ultimate desired purpose. And so you hear, that's what Paul believes. And here he says, he's going to say in verse 11, I know how to be content. And he's trying to bring that to them. And and by we can extrapolate that it brings it to us. I want to be content in my life. What does it mean? It, It means that I'm not distressed about what I wish I had. It it might be nice to have more things. I'm sure that Paul felt that it would be wonderful to be out of prison. He has nothing. He's writing from prison, chained to a guard. That must be hard. It is to say, though, as he describes it here, that I know how to be content. And I'm not, he wasn't distressed about what he didn't have. He was okay where he was. He said, you, you sent me some su- support, and I'm thankful for that. There was a gap of time there, and I, I knew that you just lacked opportunity. And when you had opportunity, then you sent it. God brought it about. So point number one is, how, how is this? How is contentment found? And the Apostle Paul describes it this way. Confidence in God's providence. Now, let's keep going. Back to our text. Satisfaction with little. I'm in Philippians chapter 4 now, and we go up with verse, um, let's go to verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I, I think when I was young, we used to say that our wants exceed our needs. We, we want a lot more than we really need, and I suppose we say that sometimes today. I think that I think that we live in a, an interesting culture with mass media and with advertisements. And what they say really is that your your needs out outrun your wants. That your needs exceed your wants. How's that? Well, because you think about television. I don't. I, I rarely watch television. I, I get my news and information other ways, but I, I don't. I don't care much about television, and the main reason, one, well, a couple of reasons. One is that it's full of trash, don't like that, don't want to be part of that, don't want to put that in my mind. But in addition to the trash, the commercials drive me crazy. I don't want anything to do with commercials. And what a commercial says is, and by, by the way, television is not about the programs that you watch, right? It's not about that. That's secondary. Primary, it's about the commercials. The capstone of television is the commercial, Television would not exist without the commercials, right? It's people selling products, and they know that if you watch their programming, whatever that happens to be, you're going to be also watching their advertisement to sell their product, and they're going to make the money, hopefully profit from that. And that's the point of of television. That's what it's about. It's about the commercials. But the point of commercials has to be that I need to make you dissatisfied with what you have and make you know that you need what I'm selling. If I don't succeed in that, then I'm going to go broke. My business won't make it. I've got to make you believe that you need more than you have, and you need what I've got to sell. Right? Who decides your needs? Who is it that determines your needs? Now, back to the passage. 
Paul is, Paul is writing from prison. He needs a great deal. But who defines our needs? I think, I think it's very interesting that you never saw a commercial encouraging you to eat or to sleep or to drink water. You don't have to have commercials for the things you really need, right? You already got that. You understand that. I want to do one more thing before I leave this point. That is to appreciate that the Apostle Paul uh, hated to take money. Now, you, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I mean for preaching, for, for his work, the support. He was hesitant to do that. Now, that's kind of ironic because when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul really lays down this principle that you ought to pay the preacher. The preacher ought to live of the gospel. That's how the system is set up. And we can talk some more about that later. But, but while that was true and while it was taught by the pen of the Apostle Paul, he was also hesitant. The church was in its infancy stage. It was young. And he was really careful about being misunderstood. He didn't want the people to misunderstand his, his goals or what he was about. So here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach the gospel of God. I didn't take the money. I didn't take anything from you because I didn't want you to be confused about my motives. And you have 2 Corinthians 11 when he did take some, some money. He did take some support. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want any confusion about this. It's kind of interesting. He was the one who taught that preachers ought to live with the gospel. Yeah, but in this case, I don't want you to have a confusion. Now, you, you put all that together, and what you have is the same thing as verse 11 of our text today. Not that I speak in regard to need. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. How you doing about that? Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Here's what he says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Wow. If you could attain to this, you're doing really well. Can we do it? Yeah, we could do it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it certainly will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money, it's not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Are we driven by that? Are we driven by more? Is this based on this, this false idea that the more I have materially, the happier I'm going to be? It's never going to be true, you know. You know the experiment. You can do it right now in your mind. Think of the richest person you know. Who, I mean, materially. Who's the person in your world, in your circle that you know that's the richest? Which one would that be? Now picture that person right now in your mind. And then let me ask you a question about that person. Is that the happiest person you know? Because according to this, this principle, that should be true, right? That should also be the happiest person because he has the most. And the answer is it's not true. For we brought nothing into this world, it certain will carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which 
Some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, old man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The second one is satisfaction with little. Now, here's the third one. There are three secrets in this passage connected to his contentment. And the third one comes in verse 12. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. That, that's it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and this point is that, that my faith grows to be independent of my circumstances. Now, I need to repeat that because I want you to grasp it. My faith has to become independent of my circumstances. I, I trust him and live in the warmth of his love, whatever my circumstances at the time. I can become a victim to my circumstances if I'm not careful about that. And so what's going on in a particular day may just toss me to and fro in reference to my faith or my contentment. And for that reason, it's really good to see that the one who wrote this by the inspiration of the Spirit, when Paul wrote this, to see his circumstance... And, and he's in prison, but this is the Apostle Paul. Walk down through some scriptures with me. Acts 14 and verse 19. I just want to read several of them and show you who it is that's writing this. Acts 14, 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Acts 17, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Acts 18, 12. When Gallio was proconsul at Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Acts 20, verse 3. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. They plotted against him. And finally then, Paul was shipped away to Rome to prison. And so here's 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience and tribulations and need and distress, in stripes and imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. And it was this Paul who from prison wrote the book of Philippians, and he says in verse 12, I know how to be abased. Well, I suppose he does. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do this. I can do this through Christ. What is the secret of contentment? Now, remember, contentment by definition, and this is where we started this morning, is not disturbed by the desire of anything more. It isn't that... that 
I wouldn't be pleased if I had something else. It wouldn't be, it's not that. If I was offered advancement in my work, it's not that. It's that I, I live my life in the peace of God's hands. That's it. it. It's that I don't pine for more. It is not disturbed by the desire of anything more. Contentment. And so Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, that is, if you're a Christian, you came up out of the water to walk in newness of life when you were baptized. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on the things on the earth, because, because you're dead and your life is hid with God in Christ Jesus. Matthew 5 and verse 11. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed art you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad because your great is your reward in heaven. There's the perspective. It's going to be all right. It's going to all be all right. In the second Corinthians chapter four and verse 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, that is to say that this life is very short, really. How do you, how do you, how do you be content in this life? It's about perspective. And Paul from prison is trying to teach us this. He makes this amazing statement. I know how to be abased. And he says, I'm content. I'm content. Right. That's right. And it's a command of scripture. It's something that's integral to the Christian life. We've got to strive for this. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, That'll mess you up. But the things which are not seen, the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. How do you do it? How do you have contentment? Have confidence in providence. Learn to be satisfied with little and make your faith independent from circumstances. I'm so glad that you're here. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? When you talk about John chapter 10 and verse 10, the abundant life, Surely it's about this too. It's about how we think. It's about how we view possessions and things and this life itself and how we anticipate heaven. It's about something wonderful called contentment. I don't pine for more. I can live for now and I know how to be abased and I know how to abound and I'm okay. I'm, I'm living good because I'm in Christ. Would you like to be a Christian? Repent of your sins and confess his sweet name and we'll baptize you today into Christ. The Bible says he'll add you to his church, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, and you'll be part of his family. You'll be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Live your life out that way and die one day and go to heaven. Maybe maybe you're a Christian already and you need the prayers of the other Christians. Maybe you've strayed into the darkness and you need to come back and you need the prayers. We're so happy to do that for you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to respond, come as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.